Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Open up your Bibles, it's what we came for, Joshua chapter 6, a chapter familiar to many of you. We finally have reached the walled city of Jericho, and we'll divide this chapter into two studies. I'll start to look forward to Pastor Chet joining me as we kind of share some teaching duties over these next several months, as uh, we'll be splitting the time fairly frequently, and as he transitions and begins to teach a little more here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, and we're actually going to share uh, these books that we're going through. And so, chapter 6, Fighting from Victory. Notice very carefully what that says. Fighting from victory. Notice it doesn't say fighting for victory. Generally, when we think of warfare of any kind or any type of battle, we think of fighting for a victory. In Christ, who God is in your life, you are not fighting for a victory. The victory has already been won by the Lord. Amen? You're actually fighting from victory. And that is really clear here in the first 16 verses of Joshua chapter 6. That in fact, in your life, in my life as a believer, in the life of the children of Israel as they've now crossed over the Jordan... They're in the promised land. They're about to receive their inheritance. They're going to get what God had promised them. That battle had already been won by the Lord. God had already done what was necessary for them to inherit the promised land. And in a very similar way, God has already done for you what is necessary for you to inherit his promises. The question is, will you in obedience... Go take your inheritance. Because you take your inheritance in obedience. You will never receive your inheritance in disobedience. Obedience brings the blessings and promises of God. That is the source of most of what we'll cover tonight as we look at this preparation before the battle as we see the battle actually belonged to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this ancient story. Lord, a battle that took place the better part of three and a half centuries, three and a half millennia ago. And God, we would ask that you would take these ancient truths and apply them to our lives. And so Lord, we give you tonight, pray that you would speak to us through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua is about ready to find out this truth that I just spoke to you. It's like this is what he is going to get. And when you think about this in a New Testament sense, you can think of how Jesus, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, the battle was already won. Jesus just simply said, I'm not having any of it. I don't need to turn those rocks into bread. I'm not going to throw myself off this cliff 
what you're looking at, Satan, that you're offering me is already mine. That's my creation out there. That's not yours. But the devil tries to convince you that he has something to offer you. And in fact, when Jesus died on the cross, remember, he simply said, it is finished. He didn't say, I've done it. He said, it is finished. In other words, it was already done. But the work of the cross, from a human perspective, from our viewpoint, was finished. He was going to give his life. But that was always the plan. And that was always what the Lord had intended. That's why he could tell the disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. You're going to see me die. And they're going, no, 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 no. We don't want that. You see, they were looking at it like they had to win the battle. And so Peter takes out his sword. Jesus had already won. And so this picture continues for us in this chapter. Very often, I know in my life, when I look at things from my human perspective, uh, I certainly could not be the one to point fingers at the children of Israel. Because probably many of you, and I know I certainly have, have attempted to fight for the Lord when he has already fought for me and I just simply need to claim what he's already done. And so that's not an unusual thing. Notice how this begins with the fear of the Lord, with the fear of God. God is quite capable of causing other people to understand exactly who he is. Verse 1, and now Jericho was securely shut up, and here we're told why. Because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. Now remember who this is. Before this walled city, and I'm going to show you some archaeological evidence of Jericho here in a moment. When you think about this city, now imagine that you've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The only clothes you own are the ones that are on your back. The only swords that you might have are ones that maybe you've taken from some other battle. You, you can't go down to you know, the sword store and get more swords. You, you can't go to the chariot store and pick up another chariot or two. You, you can't find siege machines. They haven't been invented yet. The fact of the matter is, is that Here's a walled city that's well defended, and here's a bunch of nomads that have just showed up in tents. There had to be something that was stimulating the mind of the people inside of the city of Jericho for them to express fear over a ragtag band of people who probably looked like they were homeless. That they were not a well-organized military machine. They didn't look like a battle-hardened army. There were a lot of them, but they certainly didn't look like they were anything to be feared. But these Canaanites were definitely scared of Israel's God. At that time, that region of the world, what we call the Levant, or the, the Holy Land, the southern lands of, of Asia were divided up into what we would call city-states. In other words, there would be a city, and that would be normally a group of people who would have a like-type heritage. In this case, this was a Canaanite city, much like the city of Dan, but there were also Amorite cities, and there were Moabite cities. There were Jebusite cities. In fact, Jerusalem at this time was a Jebusite city. 
And so these were city-states. They were basically, they had their own local economy. They had their own local provisioning where they would have farming and herding. Uh, They had their own water supply. And and that was why you would call them a city-state. Basically, if you went very far, you would probably bump into another sphere of influence of another city-state. And that was certainly true in this region. And people have often asked about the city of Jericho. It was not large by human standards. Now, if you were to take, for a point of reference for you, the property that we currently sit on, plus the Hamilton parking lot, you're talking about six acres. The city of Jericho was about nine acres, so about 50% larger than where the church building sits. You're on the corner of Knox and Vermont, and the Hamilton parking lot. Put those together, add about 50% more, and that's the size of the city of Jericho. So lock that into your mind, and now imagine that the Bible actually tells us that Ai, which is smaller than Jericho, we're going to find as we get to chapter 8, had about 12,000 people in it. And so Jericho, it's believed at this time, probably had between, say, 10 and 20,000 people, most likely somewhere between those two, maybe 15,000 inhabitants. Now imagine the capacity of this sanctuary is about 22 to 2,400, depending on how many extra seats we have set up. And so you can quickly see that this was a very densely packed, double-walled city that was well-defended, and it had a whole bunch of people in it relative to the land mass. And so you have this army that isn't really an army. It's actually a bunch of sheep herders that are now going to march around the city. And so a little bit about the history of it. Um, That is actually the site of the city of Jericho. So when you travel to Jericho, this is the Jordan River Valley. This is the West Bank. So when you hear the term West Bank, this is on the Western Bank of the Jordan River. So Jordan is that way and Jerusalem is that way. And matter of fact, this is almost exactly due east of Jerusalem, but down in the bottom of the Jordan River Valley. Jerusalem sits at 2,800 feet in elevation. It is 1,000 feet below sea level down here at Jericho. So it's actually quite a long ways down. So when you read in the Bible, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The reason that that is said is because he spent most of his time in that valley. And so everywhere that you would go from there is up. If you're on the other side, you'd go up into the mountains that lead to the rock city of Petra. As you would go the other way, you would head towards Jerusalem. Or maybe you'd head towards Gilboa to the south. Or perhaps you would go north up to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. This particular city is called, Jericho actually means the city of palms. And if you travel today, this is one of the richest date-growing regions in all of Israel, which happens to be the Palestinian territory of the West Bank. But as far as I am concerned, it belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is Israel. It just happens to be occupied by a group of people that call themselves the Palestinians. And so Jericho was a very large mound called the Tell. It was elevated. It also had a spring that produced enough water that they would never run out of water. One of the things that you had to have during that time, because the Jordan River is about two miles that way, 
And so you weren't going to take jars down there in, in case of a siege and get water and bring it back to the city. You needed water in the city. There is a spring that to this day still produces between 1,500 and 2,000 gallons a minute. So it's a whole bunch of water, and it just simply flows out into the valley. It comes from the mountains that you can't see behind that photo. But as Jericho began to be fortified, it was what was called a double-walled city. And so you would look at this city and now imagine that mound. And so that particular trench was dug back in the 1940s and 50s. Um, This city has been extensively excavated, and they have located two sets of walls, both of them roughly 24 feet tall. And so imagine now that you're coming to attack this city. You're coming from a flat plain that has a river in it, and you're about to look up at this city, and the top of it up there is 50, 60 feet of elevation above you, and the people inside of it actually do have weapons. It would be a fairly terrifying sight, no matter who you are, if you're down there in the flatlands. And so the city itself, from an aerial view, if you look down on it, that is actually modern-day Jericho, and ancient Jericho is just outside the city. They actually built a hotel right next to the mound, so you can go out there and take a look at it if you want. But the reason that this city was there was it also guarded the Jericho Road. So when you read about the road, the Jericho Road that Jesus frequented, where was the Good Samaritan story? Where, Where did that take place? It took place on the road to Jericho, right? Well, that is the mouth of that canyon. That canyon winds through the foothills. You can actually see the canyon. That's the other end of the road. And so that is the road that would take you through the Judean foothills to the city of Jerusalem and then would be the crest of the mountain. And then you could go to the Mediterranean coast. And so this is a very important trade point. This is where if you unloaded goods at the port city of Jaffa, and you went to Jerusalem on a couple of days' journey, you would then take a couple more days' journey, and you would end up at Jericho. Jericho would then get you across the Jordan River Valley, and you would go to the rock city of Petra where the Nabataeans uh, set up their spice trade. And so this city was an important city-state. You paid taxes to it. If you traveled through it, you could provision your caravan there. And so this was a place where there was a ton of people hanging out. Archaeologically, when you looked at Jericho, um, we now know that the walls, and we'll actually get the rest of the story next week, the walls were extremely steep. You can see where the spring is in that photo, and so the spring is inside of the city walls. That makes it a defensible city because they now have a source of water that they can get to even if they are laid siege to. So you can imagine that the people inside of Jericho, though they were afraid of the God of Israel, they probably weren't all that afraid of the people that were about to march around the city. Because they go, we got walls, we got water, we have food. And the reason that we know they had food is in the destruction layer, which the walls in this particular city are one of the very few places where they actually saw that walls actually caved inward, which is part of the biblical narrative. Grain jars that are 3,400 years old, still full of grain. So when Jericho fell, it fell 
fully provisioned as if someone were still, uh, they had the ability to withstand a siege. And so they were prepared for that. They were prepared for war. The other thing that you can't see in the biblical narrative is how compact the city is. One of the things that will strike you when you travel to Israel is the, we, we talk about homes, right? And we complain because our homes are built one right on top of another in Los Angeles. Matter of fact, maybe you live in a town home or a condo and your home is attached to somebody else's home. But chances are your home is probably still a thousand or twelve hundred square feet. Might be larger than that. It could be a little smaller than that. Maybe you live in one of the little houses left over from the 1940s, 30s that are in Lomita. You have one of those little tiny 800 square foot houses. That would have been a mansion during biblical times. That would have been gigantic. You probably would have had 50 people living in a 1,200 square foot home. And the reason we know that is when you excavate these cities, this is the the area between the two walls. Each one of those, what we would call rooms, is actually a home. It's not a room. That's where four, five, six, seven, eight, ten people may have lived. And so when Jericho fell, not only was the city itself, the upper part, occupied and packed with homes, the, the place between the two walls also was completely packed with homes. So there were thousands of people defending the city of Jericho. You can imagine how much noise thousands of people shouting and screaming and yelling and hollering down at you as you're looking up at a 24-foot tall wall. To put that into reference, for those of you sitting here in the front row, it's not quite 24 feet to the back of the light bar there. So now imagine you've brought all these people to march around this walled city with people up on top of it yelling down at you, and you've got maybe some rocks and a sword, or in, as we're going to find out, you've got jars and torches and not much else. When the walls finally come down, the children inside are just as stunned as... We, we might be today if, you know, our mighty American military was defeated by a bunch of people on horseback. It just doesn't make any sense unless God's already won the battle for you. Then it makes all the sense in the world. Then all these fortifications, everything that was inside of Jericho, if God says it is so, it is so. If God's done the fighting for you, the battle's already won. It belongs to him. In this particular photo, Dr. Woods, who is one of the last archaeologists, Kathleen Kenyon, Dr. Kenyon from Oxford, actually spent almost six years excavating this particular part of Jericho. But that particular wall is the outside wall. And interestingly enough, when they excavated it, it didn't fall out. You would expect it to do that, right? Because it's compacted with earth from behind, almost 12 feet deep. It fell in. The Bible says the walls of Jericho came and fell in. The archaeological evidence says exactly the same thing. They fell inward, which makes no sense from a military standpoint. In the mid-1500s or so, or excuse me, the mid-1500s, Mary, Queen of Scots, had kind of a similar experience. You know, she was wicked Queen Mary. She wasn't a nice person, 
and many of the reformers, John Knox being one of them, had been known to publicly pray against her because she was pretty evil. She was having Christians burned at the stake and many other things. And she actually was quoted as saying that she feared John Knox's prayers more than she feared any enemy's army in the world. She was more afraid of his prayer life than she was afraid of an army. And that's the picture that we have here in this particular passage of Scripture as we see now the promise of the Lord. What did God promise? And the Lord, verse 2, said to Joshua, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. In other words, when God speaks, God is always going to be correct. The question is, are we going to believe God for what he said? We're going to act on it. When we use the English word to reckon, we reckon things to be so. It involves mental assent to the information we're given, but it's more than that. It means to actually act on them. It's not just to believe that it's true. It's to act on it as it is true. In other words, it's to do something with what you believe to be true. You see, there's a lot of things that we know to be true. I believe that gravitational force acts on an object, and if I were to fall forward off this stage, I'm going to land on my head down there on the floor. The way that I can tell you I reckon that is that I don't lean forward too far so that that might be an opportunity for me to fall because I actually reckon that gravity is real. And in the same way, the children of Israel, as they're given this information by God, they didn't just know it. God had promised it. They didn't just believe it. They actually reckoned it to be so, so that it changed their behavior. And that's the only explanation for what's going to follow. They didn't just know it. It wasn't just up here. It transitioned, as we said on Sunday. It got to the heart. But they also then acted on it. They said, we so believe this, we so understand it, we so get it, that we are whatever God says, if he says it, it's true, and we're going to act on it. We're going to do something with it. It's the very same principle that James teaches, be therefore doers of the word, not just a hearer only. That's reckoning God's truth to be so real that you do something with it. And I pray that's something that you have absorbed into your life spiritually. That when God promises you something, your mind is being renewed by the Holy Spirit right now. That's a truth. You should know it. It's something that you absolutely should believe. But you also should act on it. If he is for you, who can be against you? You should know that. You should believe that. You should also act on it. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You should know that. You should believe that. And you should live your life as if it's true. We should reckon things as God sees them. 
We should make a reckoning of those events. It's actually an accounting term. It means to make sum in total. So if you were to look at it this way, I have what I know becomes what I believe should add up to that's what I do. It's to make a reckoning, to balance the books of your life according to God's plans, according to God's word, according to God's will and way. You see, believing a promise is very much like if, you know, remember we used to write checks and you would write a check to somebody and you would hand it, you'd, you know, remember, for those of us who have been around a while, remember you used to go to the grocery store and if you didn't have ID, you couldn't cash your check? <coughs> or if your name wasn't printed on it, it's a blank, it's like, no, we're not taking that. Well, see, there's a step beyond that because even with your name on it and even with that idea that that, that ID that you gave them was correct, you actually didn't reckon that situation until you went to cash that check. Amen? And in a very same way, the children of Israel are about to cash God's check. They're about to fully reckon that it's true. They're not just going to hear it. They're not just going to believe it. They're going to do something with it. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given you Jericho into your hand. Its king and its army is another way to look at it. The mighty men of valor, those that are defending the city. Here come the Lord's instructions. You shall get tanks. And F-35 strike fighters. Laser-guided munitions. Make sure that you have plenty of small arms. Make sure you get those pieces of body armor on correctly. No. There's, no, there's not a single thing about warfare here. You shall march around the city. All you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. And you shall do this six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. So here goes the ark of the covenant, the ram's horns, not the shofar. This is the jobel, the very different horn. That was the horn of jubilee. It was only blown on those events when there was something wonderful that happened and you wanted to declare the good things of the Lord. Seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. Now, if you've ever heard... An orthodox rabbi blew a ram's horn. You'll know that it begins with a whole bunch of very shrill, very short bursts. And at the end, there's one very long, as long as they can make one breath last. I should have brought my shofar down here and done this for you, but it's up in my office and I forgot. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all of the people will shout with a great shout, 
And the wall of the city will fall down flat. Remember Dr. Woods's foot, it's laying on top of a flat wall, completely flat. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. In other words, they're going to surround the city, and when the walls come down, they're going to basically be able to walk in. Joshua didn't take the city by military prowess. He didn't take it by advanced weaponry. He didn't take it by superiority of force, even though they had a much larger group of people. We're not sure, but we know there is almost assuredly more than a million people. There might have been nearly two that exited the wilderness wanderings. But this is just another sign that nothing is too big for the Lord. Whether it's a walled city or 5,000 hungry people in a lunch basket. When God has purposed to accomplish something, he is more than able to do that. And in this passage, you can actually see there are three different ways that are fairly visible that you can head out and accomplish something for the Lord. Notice the first one. We can make good plans and we can hope they succeed. Man makes his plans. God ordains our steps. That's the teaching that David understood. It's like, here, here's, here's, we need to do some thinking, that's for sure. No one goes to war, doesn't first consider the cost, Jesus said. We do need to make plans, and we can go out in the hope of the Lord, and perhaps they'll succeed. We can make our own plans, and we can ask God to bless them. Uh, unfortunately, that is the default position of an awful lot of Christians. I make my plans and I say, God, now either bless my plans or fix my mess. That's kind of the two outcomes of making your own plans without considering what God wants, is he will either bless what you did because somehow you actually got it right, or he will fix what you messed up because you got it wrong. The third way, obviously God's way, is to actually ask God what his plans are. And then whatever he says... Do that. And that's exactly what this plan is. Joshua gets his orders from the Lord, and he begins to do something that seems absolutely incredibly silly. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this in the context of warfare of any kind, modern or otherwise, but to make your battle plan to take a walled city, well, we're going to have some people with trumpets and we're going to march around the city once a day for six days and then at the end we're going to shout and we're going to have the victory. That, you tell somebody that if you're in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, the Marines or the Coast Guard and you're probably going to be asked to go home. Nobody's going to receive that from you as a, you know, wow, that's what military. You will not get that at the war college, okay? People will think you're nuts. But God's wisdom, exactly as Isaiah chapter 55 reminds us, God's wisdom is above our ways, amen? And in fact, his ways are so far above our ways that we're actually incapable of knowing fully the things that God knows. We can't know everything God knows. And so this is a classic example of God giving instructions that seems foolish. He's using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why? 
is the question. Because if it were just Joshua, and if it were just a powerful army, and if it were just military strategy, and if it was superior force, if it could be done by man, then man could conceivably take the credit for it, right? But man's not going to get the credit for a military victory that involves marching around the city six times and then shouting. Nobody's given Joshua credit for that. God alone is going to receive the glory because only God could pull that off. And so very often in your life, you're going to have your Jericho moments to where God is going to allow in your life things that there is no explanation for how they ended up the way they did, save the Lord of glory did it for you. Amen? Those are your Jericho moments. That's when you wake up and you have no idea how you're going to be extricated from that situation. You don't know how God's going to heal your marriage. You don't know how God's going to bring back that son or that daughter that's wayward. You do not know where that money's coming from. You have no idea how God's going to heal that disease. You don't know and you can't do it. But God can. God can. God can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything. All that you can ask and or think. He is able when you're unable. And so in that sense, whether it's Joshua's trumpets or Gideon with torches, David in a sling, those are all impossible things, right? Our God is the God of the impossible. What we can't do, he can do. What we're incapable of accomplishing is no big deal for him. And so this is the Jericho moment. What seems foolish, what seems like it would lead to defeat, what seems like the enemies of God might have an opportunity to blaspheme, when God takes this kind of victory, God alone receives the glory for it. And I think sometimes we forget how much God desires to have glory from our lives. And so he places us knowingly in situations where we have to cry out to him. For many of you, I'm sure you would say yes and amen to the fact, has not your God been faithful in moments when you've been unfaithful? Amen? Hasn't he done exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you can ask or think? That's who he is. That's part of his character and his nature. He never fails to amaze is the way you need to look at it. I look back on my life and it's like it's just one giant string of events that have been put together by the Lord that in a human sense there's no way that those things should have been reckoned to where I am today. You have to look back and go, God did that. So the instructions of the Lord may not always make sense to you. Now, I want you to be very careful because you can take that too far to the point, well, I'm just not going to do anything then. The Bible does not teach holy hand-sitting, okay? 
Let's just clear that up right now. The Bible is a mixture of prudence, wisdom, and understanding, and knowledge, and using your mind. God gave you your mind, right? He didn't give you your mind so you could just, you know, like, whatever. I'll just sit here until God does something. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches holy action. That's guided, especially in a New Testament sense, by the Holy Spirit. And so notice what that is. It's a promise of 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 where it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. As I've said to you so many times, if you want God's best, give him yours. If you want God to do fantastic things in your life, then do fantastic things for him. Now, it's not always that that has to happen. But if you want to have the best chance at a great outcome, then be great for the king and his kingdom. If you'd rather have more blessings rather than less blessings, then be great for his kingdom. If you'd like to see the Spirit work in your life in a spectacular way, then do all you can to be great for the kingdom. Notice the number of times that we see the number seven in this particular chapter and actually in several other chapters here in the book of Joshua. To the Jewish people, that was God's number. It was the number of completion. Seven branches on the menorah. Here we're going to see seven days of marching. There were seven trumpets, seven circuits of the city, the seventh day. There are seven the seven days of the week, and then you would have the Sabbath, the seven days that were compounded with three special holy days. It would be the ten days of awe, the 70 times seven, the seven times seven, just over and over and over and over and over again. The seventh month is when the major feast, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, that's the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. God was, God was telling them, it's like, look, I'm telling you this because this is me. Now, having said that, please don't wander around, well, unless God tells me seven times, I'm not going to do it. Or, you know, if you have something that's divisible by seven, it's automatically God's will. In this sense, God was just simply confirming, look, this is me. When you see this happen, it's interesting that the Hebrew word is translated seven, which is sheva. So when you see bear sheva, that's seven wells. It actually means to be fulfilled or satisfied. So the number itself means to be fulfilled. And so God is basically saying, look, this is the seventh time that I'm going to tell you these things. And I want you to go do it. Whatever you do, I'm going to be behind it. They blow the ram's horn. The Jews used two different kinds of trumpets 
in, in a sense. They used silver trumpets and they used those made of ram's horn. And of the ram's horn, there were two kinds of those. And so this happens to not be the Hebrew word trumpet or shofar. It's ram's horn, which is jobel, which is the root word for jubilee or joy. This is the, you're going to march around this thing and you are going to blow a horn of joy. Now, it's interesting because they're blowing the horn and then the walls fall in. So they're expressing the joy of the Lord before they actually see the result, right? That is a New Testament principle in the Old Testament. We are to count all things as what, church? Joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience, when it has its full and complete work in you, it leaves you lacking nothing, We are supposed to express joy in faith. I don't just express joy when things are good. I express joy in faith. I believe God for the Jobel. I believe that God is doing that work. If he's asked me to march around this thing seven times and blow a horn of faith, then I need to blow a horn of faith. Before I see the walls fall down. Because the walls aren't falling down until next time. You march around and you in faith blow those horns. That's a little risky, isn't it? Think about it for a second. You're in this crowd of marchers. On the sixth day you go around, you go back to camp. You're sitting there talking, like, okay, well, tomorrow's the last day. Now, we've been around six times, and, you know, I was, while I was walking, I was checking out the walls. There's no cracks. Can you imagine the conversations they're all having with each other? It's like, did you see how tall those things are? They're up there, you know, they're throwing tomatoes at us. They're calling us names. Don't think the people inside of Jericho weren't up there mocking, laughing, pointing fingers. Go, hey, you see the walls fall down yet? I think that's the sixth time. Didn't I see you yesterday? <laughs> Can you imagine? It's kind of like the Rams game. It's all the 49er fans talking trash. And then all of a sudden, oops, didn't count on that. Right? It's the same deal. They're they're marching around like, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're going around again. When are you going to give up? You lost. Nope, we trust God. And on the seventh time, as a sign that they believe God, they have reckoned God to have told them the absolute truth, they blow the horns, and the walls are still standing at that moment. It was not until they expressed faith that the walls came down. It wasn't until they were doers of the word that the walls fell down. They had to do what God had asked them to do. God had already won. It was already a year of jubilee. They had come into the land. They were going to rest in the land. But they had to come in and act in faith. Not everything was set up so that the entrance into the promised land was going to be easy. Matter of fact, we're going to find out that the whole rest of the book of Joshua is a series of conflicts, battles, warring, division of the land. It's the history of the Jewish people. 
It's like they go from city-state to city-state to city-state, and each time they'd get there, it's like, nope, we're not giving this to you. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. This is the very reason that when the ten spies got to Kadesh Barnea in the first place, they looked and said, nope, we're not going. And now a whole new generation is going to get to see God work by faith in their lives. Are you willing to let God work by faith in your life? Are you willing to let God work by faith in your life? Because God wants to do that. Oh, he works by natural means too. But he wants to work by faith in your life. And it isn't always that you get it all mapped out. Pastor Chet and I were talking this afternoon and we're just sitting there going back and forth on a couple of things that the Lord was showing each of us, you know, it comes down to this. You either trust God or you don't. You either believe God or you don't. You either surrender to him or you won't. It's up to you. God wants to do miracles in our midst, but he wants to do them when we step out in faith. He's not going to just do something because you had a great plan, and it's like you're going to get the glory for it. He wants to receive the glory for it. These guys are marching in a victory parade before the victory is actually visible. That's a pretty awesome thing. That's the counting, that's the reckoning it to be joy that we're supposed to have. It's like, Lord, I'm going to express the joy. We're on the fifth time. But I'm going to live my life in joy, believing that you have already won this war. truth of the matter is there wasn't even going to be war there was going to be no battle they're preparing for it i'm sure joshua probably gave him some basic instructions about warfare but there wasn't even going to be a war there was just going to be a victory celebration that actually is the life of us who believe in the lord as as we live lives of overcomers that's who we are Jesus said, fear not, I've overcome the world, right? You you have an enemy, a real enemy, the world, your own flesh and the devil. But Jesus has overcome all three of those component parts of your enemy. Jesus defeated the devil on the cross, defeated death on the cross, killed, mortified your flesh on the cross, has caused you to walk in new life, which you didn't have. You were dead before. He's already done that work. And so in that sense, you're already an overcomer. If you were to die right now, if you're here tonight, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are saved, which I believe is a vast majority, if not all of you, the battle's already been won. You're just waiting for the victory parade. We're in the marching around the city right now. That's what your life is. You want to boil down your life to a very simple analogy. Well, I'm just on the, in my case, the 67th time around the city. Right? I'm going around the city. It's like, oh, okay. One more year. Another year. Another year. And then, hallelujah, I'm home, Jesus. (laughs) Victory shout, right? Blow that horn. Isn't it weird that when Jesus returns for his church, what's going to happen? 
a trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise to meet him in the air. Amen? Guess what kind of trumpet that is? Same one, Jobel. The trumpet of joy. All of a sudden, forever to be in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Sometimes all we, all we see is the walled cities. All we see is the problems. All we see is what we don't have. We need to focus on what we do have. And in him we are more than conquerors. Amen? Through him who loves us. Amen? That's knowing the promise, believing the promise, and reckoning the promise. We are more than conquerors. Conqueror is good, isn't it? That means you're on the winning side. So if you're an over-conquering conqueror, that means that you have more than the conqueror has. That means that you've not just won, but you have won decisively and exceedingly. You have overcome everything. We have to live that kind of life. How many Christians wander around? Well, I think I'm going to win. Well, I almost won yesterday. That's not what the Bible declares about us. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. More than. Abounding in conquering. Verse 6. Let's finish up our passage. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew trumpets And then the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed behind them. Armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the Ark. And while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people saying, You shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice. Now this is the crazy part to me. It's like they duct tape their mouths shut. I don't know what they did. I don't know how you get that many people to wander around the city with a bunch of people heckling you and there's not one person in your midst that's going to go, eh, stick their tongue out or something. I don't know. Nothing. Until the day I say to you, shout, and then you shall shout. They're just silently going around the city. They got the trumpets. They even have some swords. And so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around at once. And then they came back to camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. The rear guard came after the ark of the Lord. And while the priest continued blowing the trumpets, and the second day they marched around the city. Kind of get the picture. And returned to the camp, and so they did for six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early. And about the dawning of the day, they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. 
And on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, it happened. When the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. God is still fighting our battles, church. He's still working the exact same way. And by that, I don't mean that you're going to be going out marching around any city anytime soon. But he is still doing the impossible. He is still causing things to come to pass on your behalf that you do not understand. That in fact, you're actually often helpless to affect the outcome of those things. They're beyond your control. They're out of your purview. You're you're short on mental ability to know. You're short on ability to fully understand. You can't even quite reckon the whole thing. But there's God in the midst of that circumstance in your life. And you can imagine as Joshua shares this plan with the priest, you know, you kind of, if you stop and think about this for just a moment, as Joshua instructs the soldiers, he, he doesn't enlist the entire army for this event. That would have been way too many people. They, they probably wouldn't have been able to get everybody around the city in a single day. So this is probably a select group. And the rest of the people are over there in the camp at Gilgal, and they're, you know, who knows what they're doing. They're barbecuing or something. They're throwing a little, doing a tailgater. They're kind of, they're cooking up some grub or what you can kind of see the campfire out there in the distance. But God's at work. God's at work. And God had been at work with them. They could look back on their history and go, well, we used to be in slavery to Pharaoh. And God saved us from that. We were chased to the Red Sea And God opened the Red Sea and got us across safely. We were wandering in a wilderness with nothing. And God fed us every day and brought us to water. And even when we went to a bitter spring, he made the bitter water fresh. When we didn't have anything, God took care of it. We just went across the Jordan River. It was at flood stage. And there's an interesting thing that you can see in this story. Notice how the focus in each one of these things is the Ark of the Covenant. What was hovering over the Ark of the Covenant? It was the presence of the Lord. They were going where God was going. They were on God's path, in other words. The presence of the Lord was with them. The ark was with them. The presence of the Lord was with them. Inside of the ark, they had the word of God. They had the power of God. And they had the provision of God. So wherever that ark went, when it went around the city, God went around with them. When it went back to camp, God went back to camp with them. Wherever they went... God was with them. That's actually actually the secret to this particular passage. The secret is God went with them. 
And if God goes with you, you're more than a conqueror. But if you run ahead of God, and God's back there, you're on your own. If you're in your flesh, if you're in sin, then you're running away from God. God's presence is not with you. That's a recipe for disaster in the life of somebody who claims to love God. And so the picture is this. God didn't ask them to say anything. God didn't ask them to do anything. God said, would you go with me? We'll do this together. My presence will be with you always. What did Jesus say? Lo, even to the end of the age. Where I go, Jesus said, you will also be. I go to prepare a place for you. The presence of God is what the Lord has always wanted for us. That's what Adam and Eve gave up in the garden, wasn't it? They walked with God in the cool of the day. And when they sinned, what happened? God said, no. You're going to have to stay here on your own. My presence is going to be lifted from you. And now you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to call your own shots. And they lost the presence of the Lord. Church, you don't ever want to lose the presence of the Lord. As these people march day after day, I can pretty well imagine that the tension grew. They were probably it's like, wow, well, we're on the sixth time. He told the seven, I sure hope something happens tomorrow. Knowing the testing of your faith has a purpose. God's doing something. And his purposes lead to his presence. And his presence leads to his power. And his power leads to his provision. When he is with you, you have what you need. But you can have everything you think you need and lack his presence and you have nothing. Don't ever let anything take the presence of the Lord from your life. Ever. When God speaks, those words are for us to reckon. They're to know them, to believe them, and then do them. So that what he wants to do, what he wills to do, he can do in our lives. His plans and purposes often rest in our reckoning. Oh, he's spoken. We may even claim that we believe it. But are we doing it? Because it's in the doing that you see the presence of the Lord. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. We're going to have some pastors down front to pray with you if you have something specific that's on your heart. And remember, we fight from victory and not for the battle belongs to the Lord. He's already secured it. All we got to do is go with him and see him give us the victory he's already won. Father, thank you. 
Lord, we just give you a, a, a fresh ability to step into our, our little worlds, Lord, that we sometimes try and control. And we give you free reign to move and to work. Lord, command us as you will. And Lord, would we know these things that you want us to do. You're so good at telling us we're not so good at listening. And so God, unstop our ears and take the blinders off of our eyes so that we can see and hear the things that you desire for us. Help us to know them, to believe them, and to reckon them to be so. Help us to lean on your presence. Lord, to rest in your power and your provision so that your promises become fulfilled in our lives. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.